Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 13. If you're using one of the blue pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1005. Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 13. This is the very Word of God. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for, to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete is growing old, is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you now, humbly asking for your grace. May you remember your promise not to allow your word to return to you void, but may you cause it to bear much fruit among us here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Old Testament book of Esther tells the story of a young Jewish woman who rose to a position of prominence in the Persian Empire for such a time as this. You may remember the details of the story. There was a Persian lord named Haman who hated a man named Mordecai. And he hated Mordecai because Mordecai refused to bow down to him and pay him homage as other men. And so when Haman discovered that Mordecai was a Jew, he plotted not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill all the Jews living in Persia. But when Mordecai learned of the plot, he went to Esther 
And he asked her to go to the king on his behalf and on her behalf and on behalf of their people. And he could make such a request because she was the first queen of Persia. That is the position of prominence to which she had risen. Now being the queen did not take away all the risk. There was still great risk as she went before her king. In fact, you can remember her saying, if I perish, I perish. But she was at least in a position to speak to the king. She was in a position to make their need known. And it was because of her position that Mordecai said, who knows whether you have not come to this position in the kingdom for such a time as this. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a Jew living in Persia in those days. How thankful would you have been to know that one of your own had the king's ear? That one of your own could speak to the king on your behalf? We still experience something like that in our day. We often say it's not what you know, but it's who you know. To, to know people in positions of, of power and influence is a great advantage to us. I can remember shortly after we were married, Sarah was looking for work. And it was a great advantage to us that her father knows Hugh McClellan, the uh, president and owner of Provident Insurance Company. Because she didn't just send her resume to Provident, but she gave her resume to her dad, who gave it to Hugh McClellan, who then took it to HR. And it was pretty much a sure thing she was going to get a job at that point. We, she, she knew the right people. She had someone in place. So that they could speak on her behalf. And that's the thing that the author wants us to see this morning. What he wants us to see this morning is that we have a high priest who is uniquely positioned to intercede for his people. Look again at verses 1 through 5. Notice what the author says. He says, the point and what we are saying, the, the, the chief point, the head point of, of everything that I've been saying up to this point is that we have such a high priest. And what is this high priest that we have? What is he, he like? He is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He is one who serves in the holy places, the true tent the true tabernacle, not made with hands, but the, the tabernacle set up by the Lord himself, not man. Just think of that picture that he is, is painting for us. We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. A, he, a priest who, who is seated at the very right hand of God himself. The one who always lives to make intercession for us, as we learned last week. He intercedes for us from the very presence of God, from His very right hand. The one who, who daily asks God Almighty to grant us every spiritual blessing. The, the one who, who asks God to work all things together for our good. The, the one who asks God to, to lavish on us His kindness and His, His mercy and His patience. That one who intercedes for us is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He serves as our priest in the true tabernacle. Of course, think about what that means. 
It means that the, the tabernacle that the Jews knew, the, the tabernacle that would become later the, the temple in Israel, that tabernacle, that temple, it was but a shadow. In fact, that's the word that the author uses. He says these were but shadows of the things to, to come. Moses erected that tabernacle according to the pattern that he was shown. And that pattern was nothing other than the very throne room of God. The tabernacle was a picture of God's presence among his people, but it was a mere copy. I visited the Titanic in Pigeon Forge. It wasn't the real thing. It was impressive. It was, it was cool to see, but it was, it was a copy. The tabernacle was a copy. It was a shadow of the, the real throne room of God. And so when they served there, they were serving a shadow. They were, they were representing. They were figuring. They were showing what, what needed to be done. They were pointing us to, to the help that we needed, but they were not able to provide the real thing. We needed a priest who served not in the shadow, but in the true tent. We needed a priest who served in the very presence of God. And that is the priest that we have. The point of what I am saying, the author says, is that we have just such a priest. Jesus serves in the true tent. He is the true priest who true, serves in the true sanctuary, in the heavenly Places from the right hand of God the Father. And don't miss the significance of the fact that He is seated there. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The Old Testament priests never sat down in the, in the temple. They, they never sat down in the Holy of Holies. They, they never sat down because their work was never done. As we saw last Sunday, their, their sacrifices had to be offered again and again, day after day, year after year, world without end. Because those sacrifices, the author tells us, were weak and insufficient. They were but a shadow of what was needed. But Jesus, He offered Himself. He offered the perfect sacrifice. Even as we have sung this morning, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he made that sacrifice not in the tent that was a shadow, but in the true tent, in the heavenly place, in the holy of holies where God is. And because that work was perfect, because that work was complete, because that sacrifice never needed to be repeated ever again, he now is seated. He now is enthroned at the right hand of God. Just let that sink in for a moment. We have such a priest. If the Old Testament Jews living in exile in Persia were overjoyed and thankful to have one with the king's ear, how much more are we to be overjoyed and, and thankful that we have one who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, making intercession for us on the basis of a perfect once-for-all sacrifice? There are at least two, I think, profound implications of this vision of Christ seated at the right hand of God. Two profound implications that I, that I think really ought to, to shape our lives here and now. And the first is this. Knowing that Jesus sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, knowing that, that He is seated there making intercession for us, 
It gives us a, a new framework for, for making sense of the trials and the tribulations that we face in this life. We've sung about it even this morning. The, the difficulties that we face, the frustrations that we face, the, the futility that we must endure. Often at, our, at the gut level, we, we interpret our tribulations. We, we interpret the troubles that, that come upon us. We interp interpret these as signs of God's faithlessness. Just this past weekend, I was at a conference for evangelism training. And this man who has been doing evangelism outside the bubble of the church for the past several years, he said the, the question that he encounters more than any other is I say to him, Pastor Al, if your God is real, why is my life so hard? If your God is real, why did this happen? If your God is real, why am I having to go through this particular trial? We all have different trials. We all have different tribulations. But we all know from first-hand experience that life is hard. And at the gut level, our natural response is to use those trials, to, to look at those tribulations as evidence of God's faithlessness. But when we see Jesus risen from the dead, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, it allows us and, and even obligates us to see those trials and those tribulations differently. It, it frees us to, to see those trials as, as instruments in our Father's hands. Yes, we, we have to still go through the trials. In this present life, we will pass through the waters and we will pass through the fires. But we see those now as instruments in the hands of our good, good Father. It cannot be otherwise. Because we have such a high priest. We have one who intercedes on our behalf, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if he is interceding for us, then we can know beyond doubt, with full assurance, that the Almighty is working for our good. It's not easy to believe. In our, in our weakness, it's, it's easy, much easier to doubt. It's, it's much easier to, to question. It's, it's much easier to, to groan. I know that's my default response. It's where I almost always begin. I never start with rejoicing when I encounter trials of various kinds. But that's why the Scriptures command us to set our minds on Jesus. To remember who He is and to remember where He is. To set our minds on Him seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of our Father. Because it is as we see Him, it is as we remember Him, it is as we meditate upon who He is and who He is for us. That we are set free to reinterpret our suffering. To reinterpret whatever trials and tribulations we have been called to pass through. To, to reinterpret them as instruments in our Father's hands as He works for our good. So that's the first thing that I want us to see this morning. If we know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, then it reframes the way that, that we interpret all of our experiences, all of our groaning in this life. But not only does it reframe our experience, not only does it give us a new way to think, 
It also ought to drive us to prayer. How often do we see prayer as that which we are left with when we've tried everything else, when we've exhausted all of our better options? How often do we say, well, I guess all we can do is pray? We say that when we've done everything else we could think to do. When we tried every trick that we knew and and none of them worked, we're, we're left with prayer. But just think about the absurdity of that statement. Think about how how absurd it is to say, well, all we can do is pray. Prayer is not what we are left with when we have exhausted all of our better options. It is our best option. It ought to be our first option. To go before the Lord Almighty and to ask Him to intercede on our behalf because He sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. We have Jesus here. And He is for us, interceding for us from the throne. What better thing could we do than to implore the King to work for our good? Of course, that doesn't mean that we let go and and let God, as is sometimes said. God works through means. He he works through us. We are to use whatever resources that He has put at our disposal to seek the good ends that He has called us to pursue. But prayer should always be the first and the last. It should be the the foundation and the, the capstone of everything that we do. Because everything we do is done in the strength of the One who sits at the right hand of the Father. Everything we do is done in His immeasurable power. Everything we do is done according to His grace towards us in Christ. And so seeing Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father ought to reframe the way we think about our troubles in this life. And it ought to drive us to prayer as our first resort. This is the first thing that we see in this passage. That Jesus is our priest, seated at the right hand of the Father. And seeing Him there reframes our life and, and, and moves us to prayer. There's a second thing that the author wants us to see. The second thing is this, that, that we have a high priest who not only is, is uniquely positioned to, to serve us, but who serves us through a better covenant. You see, it's not just that Jesus sits at God's right hand. He he sits there as the mediator of a better covenant. A a covenant, the author says, that was uh, enacted on better promises. But what does that mean? What does it mean to to suggest that, that Jesus now mediates a covenant that is better? Better than the, the previous covenant. That's that's what he's saying. Look at verse 7. He says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to to look for a a second. So the covenant that Jesus mediates is is better than the Old Testament covenant. But what was the fault with that covenant? What what was weak about the, the first covenant? Why were its promises insufficient? Why did we need better promises? The author answers that question by pointing us to Jeremiah 21, the the passage that he quotes at length in verses 8 through 12. Look again at those verses. 
In verse 8, we, we see very clearly that the Lord has promised to establish a new covenant. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so, so God is the one who determined that he would establish a new covenant. And he tells us in verse 9 that it is not going to be like the old covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And so what's going to be the difference? What is new about this new covenant? Why was the first covenant insufficient? Well, he tells us there in the middle of verse 9. What was wrong with the old covenant? He says, for they did not continue in my covenant. In fact, he hinted at this all the way back in verse 8 when he says he finds fault with them when he says. The problem with the old covenant wasn't the covenant itself. There was nothing defective in the covenant itself. The problem was with those people who were parties to the covenant. They couldn't keep it. They couldn't abide by all things written in the book of the law because they were in Adam, because they were sinners by, by nature and by choice. They, consi they consistently fell short of the obligations of the covenant. They, they consistently brought upon their own heads the curses rather than the blessings of that covenant. And so we see that the, the covenant was weak because the people were weak. The covenant said do this and live and the people simply couldn't do it. A new covenant was needed. A, a new covenant with better promises. This is what we see beginning in verse 10. Notice again what he, what he says in, in Jeremiah. For the, this is the covenant the Lord is speaking. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. The old covenant was ineffectual because while the priests could wipe the slate clean, they could then only send them back to the law. They could not give the people a perfect relationship with God because they could not make the people into the kind of people who could have a perfect relationship with God. Do you understand the significance of sin? Sin separates. Sin breaks relationship. Sin sets you far off from God. It estranges you. It, it brings an end to, to relationship. After Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they hid from God. They were terrified of Him. But of course, God pursued. He came to the garden saying, where are you? Not because he couldn't find them, but because he was calling them back into relationship. And really, that's the whole story of redemption. God calling his people back into relationship. But the Old Testament law couldn't give us the relationship that both God wanted and we needed. The Old Testament law couldn't deal with our sin problem. Even when it wiped the slate clean, it left us as sinners to sin again. And so it left us separated from God. We'll, we'll see later that that's actually a picture of what the tabernacle is all about. 
That, that access to God was not yet fully granted. But the new covenant, the new covenant is far better. Because it not only deals with our guilt, but it deals with our guilt once and for all. And it makes us into new creatures, new people with new minds and, and new hearts. With the law written into our very being so that we have a true knowledge of God and are set free to enjoy fellowship with Him forever. That is what you were created for. That is what you fell from. And that is what you were being called back to in Christ. The gospel is not the good news that you could be forgiven for your sins so that you can now live as you please with impunity. But rather the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ has offered himself as the ransom price to redeem you from the curse of the law that you might be brought back into right relationship with your God and Father forever, world without end. And not only does it bring you into that relationship, but it fits you for that relationship. See, that's the difference in this new covenant. God doesn't just offer life upon the basis of obedience. But He gives us the obedience that is required that we might have life with Him. He makes us new through the life and death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, just let that sink in. Jesus, as our High Priest, mediates a covenant that makes us into the people that we need to be to enjoy fellowship with our God and King forever and ever. Jesus brings us into relationship with Him and makes us the kind of people who can enjoy that relationship for all eternity. Just look around, just look in the mirror, you know that work is not yet done. But it is a work that He will not fail to bring to completion. And even now, we see the first fruits of the communion and the fellowship that we have with Him in the fellowship that we have with one another. Our restored relationships here and now are but a foretaste of the relationship we will enjoy with Him for all eternity. You know it firsthand how, how sin breaks relationship here. How sin brings turmoil. How, how sin brings uh, separation and distance and, and brokenness. We know it. We know it firsthand. God promises not only to forgive those sins, but to effectively undo them by making us new creatures in Christ, creatures who can live in shalom with Him and with one another for all eternity. That is the better promise of the new covenant. And what I want you to see is that this transforms what we think God is doing with our trials. I said that seeing, seeing Jesus at the right hand of the Father tells us that He's doing something good. It tells us that He is working for our blessing. But this shows us the blessing that He is bringing. What is the blessing? The blessing is not health, wealth, and prosperity here and now. But the blessing is that you might be fit for relationship. The blessing is that you might be set free from your sins 
to walk more and more in conformity with the image of Christ, who alone knows perfect fellowship with his Father. This is the blessing. We all know Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. But we often forget the very next verse, which tells us what that good is. That we might be conformed to the image of the glory of the Son. Your sufferings can be loving instruments in your Father's hands. Because your greatest good is not comfort and wealth and security and prosperity here and now. Your trials can be instruments in your Father's hands because He has a far greater good in mind for you. He is fitting you for relationship with Him for all eternity. He is teaching you to to rest on Him, to entrust yourself to Him, to look away from the false security of the things of this world and to know Him alone as your Savior. And because he is working such a weight of glory for us, that is why the trials and the tribulations of this life are but slight and momentary when compared to the blessing that he is bringing to his people. And this is what we see when we see Jesus as our high priest seated at the right hand of the Father, mediating a covenant with better promises. So that's your hope this morning. If you have received and rested upon Jesus Christ, that is your hope. You have a high priest like that. And if you do not yet know him, he invites you to come. Come to him even now. Believe on him. Bow before him as your king. Trust him as your savior. And he will do this good work in you. He will make you the kind of person who can enjoy glorifying God forevermore. And because He can do this, and because He does do this for all who call upon His name, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in Your Gospel. The Gospel of Your Son, Jesus Christ, our High Priest who sits even now at Your right hand interceding for us. In His name we ask, bless us, Father. Bless us with with eyes to see, with hearts to believe, and with wills to obey, that we might follow Him and walk in His way more and more, day by day, until at last You bring to completion the good work of conforming us to His image, that we might glorify and enjoy You forevermore, world without end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.